Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome, everyone, to the Untold Story podcast. I'm Martha McCallum. It's great to have you with us today. And I'm very pleased and very timely booking. Uh, Very glad to have with us General David Petraeus, retired four-star United States Army General, graduate of West Point, graduate of Princeton University, 37 years in the U.S. Army. He served six consecutive commands as a general officer. Five of those were in combat, including command of the surge in Iraq, U.S. Central Command, and the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan. Then, after all of that, he served his country as director of the Central Intelligence Agency. And he has just written a book called Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare, from 1945 to Ukraine. General, it's great to have you back with us. Thank you so much for being here today. I mean, obviously, the timeliness of this book is... um, Tragically. Tragic, exactly. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about your reaction when you saw what was unfolding a week ago Saturday in Israel when you first learned of this attack? Well, it was horrific, obviously. These are unspeakable acts. They're barbaric. Um, The initial response, I think, of anyone who could see something like that um, has to be, uh, again, just utter rejection, uh, condemnation, and, you know, understandably, a a desire for revenge, frankly, to take action, uh, vengeance, just as we all felt, I think, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. But we should recognize that the impact of these attacks is much greater per capita on Israel than it was for us. We lost nearly 3,000 innocent civilians in the 9-11 attacks. They lost 1,300, which the equivalent of that for Israel was well over 40,000 Americans lost. So again, this is, and it touches everyone. I mean, there have been many, many commentaries that everyone knows someone who was killed or horrifically taken hostage as well, nearly 200 hostages, including Americans, of course, and British and other citizens. Um, and then the call up of 360,000 reserves affects everyone uh, also. So again, just a really, truly horrific moment. Uh, but then one, once you, if you will, process that, if you will deal with that, come to understanding with that, I think you have to get a bit past that because, you know, as we lay out in the book, the key to strategic leadership, that at the very top of a country, of a military command, is to get the big ideas right. And revenge, if you will, destruction of Hamas is a big idea. Uh, It very likely is necessary, but it's not sufficient. There has to be more than that. And I'm sure that the discussions are taking place Uh, in Jerusalem, in the ministry in Tel Aviv and so forth, and between our Secretary of State and now soon our President on his visit, are about what else, what the day after. Again, 
We had a brilliant campaign in Iraq to topple the uh, Saddam Hussein regime, and then it turned out that our post-conflict planning was, was not adequate. Uh, those lessons should be very much in the forefront of the minds of uh, the Israeli political and military leadership, and I'm sure that they are. They have, as you well know, they've done what's called mow the grass at least four times before, where in the wake of a series of rocket attacks, they go in, they cause a lot of damage to Hamas, and tragically that often entails uh, collateral damage, damage to civilian infrastructure and innocent civilians. Um, but then you pull back out and the cycle repeats itself. And I think there is a clear recognition that you can't just do that again. I mean, even if you mow the grass down to the dirt, if you didn't just pull out um, and don't hand it off to someone else, uh, you're going to have a repeat of that. Uh, so that's the challenge. So what, you know, what are the other big ideas that are needed here? Uh, shouldn't there be a vision for the innocent, the Palestinians who are literally are now caught in the crossfire, who really don't have a huge love for Hamas. Yes, some have some sympathies for them, to be sure. Some are indoctrinated in the way of Hamas at the founding documents, of course, of which uh, don't recognize Israel's right to exist and want to kill Israeli Jews. Um, but again, can there be something that is left behind? We understand very much Israel does not want to reoccupy. There's a reason they left in 2005. Egypt might be reluctant, but there has to be some kind of interim international authority of some composition uh, to which the Israelis can make a, a handoff so that it just doesn't go back uh, and you see the remnants of Hamas uh, then resurrect themselves, reconstitute, as can happen. If you take your eye off an international extremist organization, as was the case following the withdrawal of our combat forces from Iraq in late 2011, and then the, the highly sectarian actions of a prime minister, his security forces took their eye off the Islamic State. They were able to reconstitute. Within a couple of years, they have the first ever extremist caliphate in northern Iraq and northeastern Syria. And by the way, that's instructive, because let's remember that the liberation of Mosul, the Iraqi capital of the Islamic State caliphate, that took nine months with the U.S. supporting the Iraqi security forces. Now, they're nowhere near the level of professionalism, expertise, equipping, and all the rest that the Israelis have. Uh, but it gives you a sense of how challenging these campaigns are. And then just finally, from a military perspective, again, having, as you noted, uh, had a number of combat commands, looking at the challenges that face the uh, Israeli defense forces these, this is a fiendishly difficult situation. I can't imagine a more difficult one. In fact, my co-author, the Andrew Roberts, the great Baron uh, Roberts of Belgravia, um, we can't think of an example from 1945 of a case that was just more challenging in so many different ways. Yes, there were some, even 1973, there was an existential threat uh, in the Yom Kippur war for a moment when, when Egypt achieved such extraordinary surprise and results early on, but then didn't capitalize on them. Once that moment was passed and the Israelis responded so impressively, um, then they were out of danger. And of course, that led to the historic agreement between Egypt uh, and Israel. In fact, I just left a, a, a group where Henry Kissinger was there. And, you know, where's the is there a Henry Kissinger in this moment who can cobble something together? Noting that, to be fair, this is even more difficult, and he said so. He said that was a military on military. There weren't innocent civilians all that present on that battlefield. This is going to be right into 
civilian neighborhoods, high rises. And of course, if the enemy is as creative in the defense as they were in that horrible offense, there's going to be suicide bombers, there's going to be improvised explosive devices, car bombs, use of tunnels, all of this. So again, the challenges here and at the end of all of this, there's not someone that you can't pick the phone up as Henry Kissinger did and call the president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat and Hafez al-Assad in Damascus and King Hussein and Amman Jordan and Golda Meir and then fashion some kind of agreement. You're not going to do a deal with Hamas given their founding documents, again, not recognizing the right of Israel to exist and having just carried out this absolutely uh, heinous action. So the challenges here from a tactical military respect are extraordinary. That's number one. Um, but then number two is, then what? Okay, if the, and I'm sure, I, I know the, the IDF uh, chief of staff and others very, very well. Benny Gantz, as you know, has joined this coalition, an opposition leader has now joined uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. He's the former IDF chief of staff and then the minister of defense. I know that they're saying, okay, look, you know, the guidance is exterminate Hamas so this can't happen again. But there has to be more than that to ensure that it doesn't happen again. There have to be more big ideas than just destroy Hamas. There has to be what is the vision for the future? Who's going to restore the basic services? Who's going to rebuild the damaged infrastructure? Who's gonna reopen the school? All the things candidly that we did during the surge in Iraq after we cleared and held a whole series of, of major cities, Ramadi, Fallujah, Bakuba, parts of Baghdad, Mosul, and all of these mm -hmm. tough fights. But then we had a plan for what followed. And that is going to be the real challenge here. Who could join? I mean, well, is it possible that, that the Saudis would, you know, again, these are the issues that are, and again, yeah. it's hard to imagine a thornier set of issues than confront uh, Israel right now. And that's before we talk the regional challenges with Hezbollah, with 150,000 rockets pointed at Israel with Iranian supported Shia militia in Syria, also in Iraq, where we still have thousands of troops, northeastern Syria, all of these. So think about this. And now you understand, I think, why a president of the United States is going there. The untold story continues right after this. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Well, he's got a tall uh, order. And, and what, I, what I keep thinking of as you're talking is that there's also a grand plan by Iran. And... They see the outcome of all of this very differently of course. than Israel does. I also keep thinking that the brutality that they employed was strategic, I would imagine, in part, because they knew that this brutality would prompt a very fierce attack inside of Gaza City. And the Iranian leadership knows this as well. They know that they are going to poke the bear in a way with this brutality. You don't take children and grandmothers and slice people open and behead children. You realize in doing that, that you are going to get an extraordinarily fierce response. You're gonna draw the Israelis into Gaza in order to 
kill Hamas. So what is that side of the equation? Plus, you're going to keep young. We are just watching this young lady yes. whose yep. mother mm-hmm. is showing pictures of her 20 something year old daughter. Please release her safely. Hamas is releasing videos of this young woman. She has a broken arm. They've, they've fixed her arm. They're taking care of her. There is so much orchestration on the part of Hamas in the way they're doing this. And according to The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times, not according to the White House, uh, Iran has been in on this planning for some time, General. What do you think? Um, There's no question that Iran funds all of these different organizations, Uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Shia militia in Iraq and Syria, the Houthis in Yemen. There's no question at all about that. I think there are legitimate questions about the degree of Iranian involvement. That doesn't really matter, actually. I don't think that's worth debating at this point in time. This has happened. I mean, there's time for all of that, just as there's going to be time for the postmortems on how did this terrible intelligence failure come about and how was the military not sufficiently ready as well. And again, I think there are explanations for that. I think we'll find that those are largely confirmed in in, in various ways. The issue is you raise a very good question. Is this a deliberate provocation of Israel to prompt them to seek vengeance and go into this cauldron that is going to be Gaza City? Um, And I think the answer to that is very likely so. But okay, got it. But you still, I think, have to go in and root out Hamas and not allow the Hamas political wing to stay intact uh, either. You remember there's a political and a military wing, and then there's also, of course, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad that has to be dealt with as well. Um, If you truly want to prevent this from happening, then a return to the status quo ante is not adequate. You have to do much more than that. If that is, again, if the mission given to the Israeli Defense Forces is to destroy Hamas doctrinally in military terminology, that means to render the enemy incapable of accomplishing his mission without reconstitution. So that reminds you that you have to make sure you keep an eye and pressure on them and not allow them to reconstitute. Um, So that's, again, a very, very tall order. But if you do that, then what? And that's the point that I'm really trying to draw out here. I am absolutely confident that the Israeli Defense Force leaders are laying this out for the prime minister, for the new members of the coalition. And they're all trying to work on that. And I suspect that part of what Secretary Blinken has been doing is trying to find, is there some, again, international interim authority that could go in there and deal with this? But keep in mind, they're going to have to have a counterinsurgency campaign because the remnants of Hamas, and there will be remnants, are going to try to take control of Gaza again. I'd I'd even submit that the campaign that the Israelis conduct shouldn't be thought of as a conventional military campaign. This isn't isn't Desert Storm. This is not the first Gulf War, where it's just going to be open desert, no civilians, tanks on tanks, and it's very much, again, just military on military. The difference with a counterinsurgency campaign is you don't just do offense and defense, you also do stability operations. That's the nation building. We may reject nation building, but it's unavoidable. Uh, Someone is going to have to take charge there if you don't want Gaza to be a safe haven for Hamas again, if you don't want Hamas returning to the leadership. So these are these are huge. These are fundamental issues. And as I mentioned in the book, the strategic leader, that's what they get paid to do is craft that strategy, communicate it effectively through the breadth and depth of their country, their organization and everybody else who has a stake in this outcome. 
and oversee the implementation of it and then determine how to refine it and do it again and again and again. Um, so this is a massive challenge. And I'm sure that as the emotions have, if, if you will, calmed down somewhat, but still very, very high and certainly raw, and they should be, um, then there's this recognition that we have to do more than just a lot of damage to Hamas militarily. We have to figure out what comes next for Gaza. I would submit that there should be a vision not just for the Palestinians in Gaza, but also for the Palestinians in the West Bank as well. Use this as a catalyst from which there is horrible, horrific situation that perhaps something good could come out of this would, would be a more durable uh, solution for the challenges in that area. And then, by the way, also take away an issue from Iran, who is un undoubtedly uh, very pleased to see all of this and to see the U.S. Uh, again engaged in this and have to focus on this and, and so forth. So it's interesting because this uh, solution that you discuss, there are players who would like to see this happen, right? You have Jordan, you have Saudi Arabia potentially. Potentially, yeah. Wanting to yeah. perhaps solve the Hamas Iran. I think, I think all problem. the Arabs, I think the Arab world by and large would like to solve this. I mean, they've had the, you know, they had their own solution on the table, put, I think, back in 2000, put forward by the, yeah. the king of, of Saudi Arabia. Uh, so, yes, they very much want to resolve this. And of course, there are challenges now for Saudi Arabia, which was on the threshold of what seemed to be an agreement with Israel that would have been very positive for both countries and ironically probably would have included some safeguards for the Palestinians in the West Bank. But the sentiment now in the kingdom is going to be great concern for the Palestinians and the plight of their their fellow Arabs. Uh, and of course, as inevitably there is additional civilian loss of life, it's going to happen. It is happening. It's unavoidable in this kind of situation and additional damage to infrastructure and more refugees and the plight that they have. Uh, the concern is going to be greater and greater and greater. And the initial outpouring of support for Israel, the outpouring of, of understanding of, and so forth of Israel, the condemnation of these unspeakable actions by the bulk, not all, but, but, but by most around the world, it's going to shift to where now Israel is overdoing it, whatever the words will be. Uh, and so Israel, if you can convey a vision for the future and say, this is necessary, we have to do this. You cannot allow this. This is a, an extremist group. This is not just, again, insurgents or something. They're not, this is not a viable political cause. This is to exterminate the homeland for the Jews and the world. So um, why don't the Saudis and the Egyptians make an agreement to take the Palestinians refugees? This seems to be a big problem for them. We don't no, see I any don't. of these countries stepping up to take the Palestinian refugees. And I would imagine that's something that President Biden would like to come home with. Um, he's meeting with the leaders of Jordan, of um, Israel, of Egypt. Why haven't they stepped up in the past and will they now? Well, Jordan has very much stepped up in the past. They have more Palestinian refugees than they have those that are descended from the Hashemite uh, tribes. Um, and they, it's a huge challenge for them. The political dynamics of that are enormous. They really can't take more. Uh, the Egyptian economy is in difficult conditions. 
they really don't want to take a group that might include, in fact, some of the very terrorists that carried these out if they're able to get away that way and then, you know, survive to fight another day. Um, Saudis aren't contiguous to them. They've got sympathies for them, but not not a, a huge desire to bring in a bunch of refugees. So, again, the dynamics here are very, very tough. And could you find a country that would lead a force, sponsor a force, fund a force, keeping in mind that they're going to have to fight? This is not you're not going to go in. This is not peacekeeping. Um, this is going to be serious counterinsurgency and then rebuild that territory and give the people a reason to support the new arrangement rather than to have sympathies for this, what is an Islamist extremist group, Hamas. I, I'm running out of time because I'm about to uh, run up against the live show, which we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about all of this some more when we do that. But a, but a quick question in terms of the book. Do you see these players, Russia, China, Iran, changing the global dynamic? And does it look like the precursor period to World War II or potentially World War III? I'm not sure I would go quite that far, but I don't think there's any question that a number of the countries that you listed uh, would like to see the so-called U.S.-led international order undermined. Um, they don't see it as furthering their interests to the extent that they would like. They'd like to make the world safe for their uh, form of political and economic uh, practice and so forth. So again, and obviously there's more than competition in some of these cases. I mean, we are uh, through our support for the Ukrainians, uh, we're heavily engaged in supporting a country that has been brutally and without provocation invaded by Russia uh, and is has been defeating Russia in many respects, albeit now with a a very slow rate of progress in the offensive that they're conducting in the South. Okay. General Petraeus, always great to see you. The book is called Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. It looks like a fascinating read, and I'm looking forward to digging into it. Thank you for bringing me the book this afternoon, and we will talk more um, moments away. Thank Thanks, you very Martha. much, General. Good to be with you. Great to have you with us. You've been listening to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure to rate and review. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with the Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.